0: Today's episode is a really special one because I'm talking to someone who has edited this book that I use all the time in my own works. I'm really glad to meet Matt Siebold, and we are going to talk about economics.
1: Matt, would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Matt Siebold. My title is Associate Professor of American Literature and Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College, where I'm also the resident scholar for the Center for Mark Twain Studies which means I'm the lead editor at our website, marktwainstudies.org, and the producer and host of our podcast, The American Vandal. So obviously a big part of my job, my day job, is engaging with all things Twain. But I'm also, as you said, co-editor with Michelle Chihara of the Rutledge Companion to Literature and Economics. I guest-edited a 2019 special issue of American Literary History on Literary Studies and Economics in the New Gilded Age. And so many of my publications have to do with the history of economic thought, particularly in the U.S. and the U.K.
0: And if you're listening to this episode, please go and listen to The American Panel. It's an incredible podcast which connects Twain's work with contemporary cultural and literary texts. Let me ask you my very first question. And I know that this question is in the minds of
1: many of us. What the heck is economic? (laughs) So I was listening to your episodes and I knew this would be the first question. So I think there are three coherent and loosely interrelated ways to answer this. The first is philological. The word economics traces back to sort of classical tracks on household management. The oikos, the household, was the basic sociopolitical unit of the Athenian state. And thereafter the roman and so aristotle and xenophon and others wrote philosophies of what we would now most likely think of as like personal economy or personal finance or microeconomics and i think this remains relevant because those *oeconomica* contain a theory that is still kind of popular in contemporary orthodox economics something that's often called micro foundations basically the structures motives and behaviors of individuals can be extrapolated as models for institutions, industries, nation states, even up to and including a kind of global scale. The second definition, it skips forward many centuries, and we have this subfield of political philosophy that takes shape during the Scottish Enlightenment. And then really, for my mind, more importantly, in the late 19th century, it's institutionalized as an academic discipline unto itself, notably at places like Cambridge and the University of Chicago. And this initially rather niche department develops gradually into the so-called queen of the social sciences as we now know it. Mm -hmm. And in the second half of the 20th century, into arguably the most powerful academic department in the neoliberal university. So in all likelihood, wherever you're at, whether it's a small college, an R1, an R2, so on, if you look at the administration of your college or university, you will almost always find economics PhDs are overrepresented. And as economic historians like that Phil Murawski and Eddie Nikai have shown, economists very strategically have colonized law schools, business schools, sociology departments, history departments, other academic disciplines, often treating the university as a kind of zero sum competition for resources. And thus they view the erosion and destruction of other disciplines as something that's often desirable. But to my view, the most important meaning for economics is as a sort of colonization of the mind. This is sometimes glossed as economism or economic rationality that's kind of via Foucault or neoliberal rationality via Wendy Brown or Derrida's madness of economic reason or just homo economicus. But I think it's a mistake to view the widespread acceptance of economic orthodoxy as a purely or primarily post-45 phenomenon. Walter Benjamin's famous fragment, Capitalism as Religion, is one sort of modernist example. But his basic allegation that economic epistemology is assuming the place of Christianity in Western culture is made by T.S. Eliot and Gertrude Stein yeah. and John Maynard Keynes, and even earlier on than that by Mark Twain and Charlotte Perkins Gilman and Thorstein Veblen. And as importantly, there's already a kind of debate happening amongst the generation of what we now call neoclassical economists about whether it's their job to train people to be good utility maximizers and profit seekers by converting... Converting economic theory into mass culture. So I get myself into some trouble even with my own interlocutors when I reduce it to these terms, but I don't think it's too much hyperbole to characterize economics as a propaganda and the mainstream of economists as a kind of priesthood or clergy whose job it is to protect the existing structures of power and the inequitable distribution of resources by claiming that those things are natural, inevitable, even divinely ordained. When I think of what economics means to me, that's what rises to the fore. I did want to go back to a phrase that you use, economic thought, which is a phrase that I use in my own work.
0: I try to be very conscious of using the phrase economic thought instead of economics. So could you speak a little more on the Differentiation between
1: economics as a discipline and economic thought? The simplest epochal explanation is that in the mid part of the 19th century, as what we now call economists, formalized themselves within the institutions of the academy, but also the state. They wanted to take the political out of political economy. And so there is an effort certainly amongst the so-called marginalists, the neoclassicists, to characterize economics increasingly as science. And so they're trying to dispel any association with the preceding generation of political economic thinkers, including the likes of Adam Smith and David Hume, who were moral philosophers, political philosophers, sometimes even theologians linguists, right? Even interested in aesthetics, etc. And so there's a real effort in the mid-19th century to turn economics into a more scientific field, or at least give it the illusion or appearance of scientism. And during that time, the obvious transition is that we get rid of political economy and replace it with economics. But I think also now when we use the term economic thought it's essentially used as a way to claim the prehistory of economics when you want it and to deny it when you don't
0: yeah it it is i agree it's a very malleable and convenient term i won't disagree with that my next question is how do we use economics
1: this is my favorite question that y'all ask And I think the tempting answer, the conventional answer, would be that we don't use it. We resist it, right? Economics is what is used against us to justify inequality and exploitation. And within the humanities academy, it's oftentimes used as a rationale for getting rid of us or at least not paying us (laughs) and all those sorts of things, and we can mm-hmm. even look at like the news right now. The U.S. is experiencing inflation. And it is the job of a prominent economist like, say, Larry Summers, to get himself into the New York Times opinion page or on CNN and pronounce dire warnings about the danger of spiraling inflation, yeah. how average Americans won't be able to pay their bills or put food on the table, What he carefully avoids saying is the reality that the supposed harm of inflation disproportionately redounds to the rentier, the accumulator, the billionaire. In a debtor society, inflation may be a mechanism for achieving more equitable distribution. So. What I'm saying is we might be tempted to say by rigorously historicizing economics, we can increase awareness of false causal narratives, nepotism masquerading as meritocracy, ideology masquerading as metrics, theology as science, conscription as choice, so on and so forth. However, in (laughs) recent months, I've been thinking about this through Kim Stanley Robinson's recent novel, Ministry of the Future. And Frederick Jameson's essay, which I argue sort of inspires that novel, American Utopia. And the thrust of both of those texts is that it has become impossible to imagine the annihilation and replacement of the regime of global finance capital. It's too totalizing for us to find a foothold outside So in Robinson and Jameson's work, instead, they imagine the gradual socialization of existing institutions of power, which might appear utterly antithetical to egalitarian causes for Jameson. That's namely the armed forces. And for Robinson, it's central bank. And I wonder whether their theory might be useful for us thinking about how do we use economics? There is a utopian strain that runs through the history of economic thought through figures like Mary Paley Marshall and Joan Robinson and John Maynard Keynes and John Kenneth Galbraith, even down to contemporary economists like Yanis Varoufakis and Robert Schiller and Robert Reich and Marshall Steinbaum. And I don't necessarily want to endorse any one of them, But merely acknowledge that it may be worth considering that the kinds of narrow paths of infiltration, which Jameson and Robinson imagine, might exist in economics. And moreover, it may be an institution which, unlike the banks or the armed forces, has been marginally weakened yet not yeah. destroyed by the cycles of klepto-Keynesian crisis since the 1970s. And so I guess my question really is, is it possible to think and organize anti-capitalist economics within the surviving infrastructure of capitalist economics, which is fraying around the edges because, frankly, many capitalists no longer think they need economists. Yeah. Yeah. So on that
0: note of you know whether there is something redeemable within economics as we understand it right now, let me ask you my last question. How will economics save the world now?
1: Well, I obviously think that far from saving the world, economics as it currently exists is crucial to the dis- of our society, right? The erosion of civilization. I would find very few communities more to blame for the problems that we find ourselves facing, including things like climate change, than particularly the post-45 generation of economists. That said, I think that it's very difficult to imagine escaping the economic epistemology that has become so pervasive in the 21st century. And so one of the things that I encourage people to read maybe is John Maynard Keynes's Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, and moreover, to think in those kinds of utopian terms, right? How can we turn the very problem of resource distribution into an opportunity for utopian thinking about the future. And I think that's really the lesson of Kim Stanley Robinson's book as well. How do we turn the problems of economics into new forms of collective and collaborative work? that there is no reason why accumulation has to be the sole and only motive and incentive of a philosophy of resource allocation and distribution. Obviously, sustainability is something we hear a lot about now, but there can be other motives. Certainly what Keynes argues is that there can be other motives economics can be turned towards. Things like art, and education, and health. There are all sorts of motives that we can think of as economic incentives that don't have to just be a profit model. Thank you. Thank you, Matt, so much for coming to High Theory. Thank you for inviting me.
0: And thank you for listening to High Theory.